Father, we consider it a privilege to be here this morning and a privilege to come freely into the presence of God Almighty, the Holy One. That is who you are. That is who you profess to be, and that is who you have shown yourself to be over all of the ages of human civilization. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who causes us to be accepted and acceptable in your presence. We thank you for his righteousness that is put to our account. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have because of his blood that was shed on the cross and the power to live life as demonstrated when he rose from the grave. Father, we believe that this morning. We believe it. That's why we're here. When all those around us know doubt and fear, we know that you are God and that you are in control of this world. And so we place ourselves in your hands this morning and we ask that you would speak to us from your word. I pray that these words would be your words, that your spirit would be free to teach us, to correct us, to set us on the right path, and to prepare us for everything that you ask of us. So we pray your guidance over these next few moments for your glory's sake, in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I don't know about you, but these last few mornings, not to uh, belabor the fact, but I have definitely felt a chill in the air. And you know what that means, right? First of all, I'm glad to see everybody here this morning, because when I saw what the temperature was going to be at 9 o'clock and then 10 o'clock, and I told Melody, she said, wow, do you think that people will come? And I said, well, I don't know. I hope so. But then I thought, you know what? I mean, isn't this the week that we want to be here anyway, right, Jackie? I mean, this is fair week. I mean, this is, this is perfect fair weather. So, you know, minus the chicken fingers and fried dough and uh, a few rides, I mean, here we are. We're here. When we feel that chill in the air and we start to shiver a little bit in the mornings when we crawl out of bed and make our way to the coffee maker, you know what that means, right? It means storm center. It means you're going to turn on the TV or flip open your computer pretty soon in just a few weeks, and there is going to be a news anchor freaking out about the storm of the century that is descending upon us, right? Have you ever noticed, that, I, don't, I, mean, I know that you guys know that a century is a hundred years, you ever notice that we get the storm of the century like three to four times a year? Like, this is it! The worst blizzard we've ever had. Eight to ten inches, ten to sixteen, sixteen to twenty-two. And your phone starts buzzing with all the weather alerts. And you go to Hannaford and there's no milk or bread or water. Apparently people only buy it when there's a storm coming. And everybody is melting down. And if we do get snow somewhere on a corner of a busy street, there is a reporter with his L.L. Bean jacket telling you just exactly how much snow is out there. Why do we have so much of that? Why are we so obsessed with creating these crises? Well, maybe for one reason, ratings, I guess. 
That's what gets people to watch when they think something is going on. But I think you have to admit that on some level, people enjoy a good crisis. Gives us something to talk about. Gives us something to worry about. Something to think about. I mean, all you have to do is watch the movie trailers. Two or three times a year, there's another good apocalypse movie that comes out. Or another big disaster movie. The world is ending. Asteroids are going to hit the earth. It's all going to be over. Gloom and doom. The sky is falling. This is it. We're finished. We're toast. Head for the hills. If you were to take your phone right now, don't do this, but if you were to take your phone right now and Google the word preppers, you'd get 48 million hits in under a second. That's not an exaggeration. I did it. Now, please listen to me carefully, folks. To be sure, there are some incredibly difficult things happening in our country right now. Medically, politically, also morally and spiritually. And I want you to hear me. I'm not minimizing those things. Also, to be sure, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but to be sure, the end is near. The end has been near for a long time. And obviously, it's closer now than it's ever been because time continues to go by. In fact, Scripture tells us to be watching because the end is near. There are many passages that talk about it. And what I want to share with you this morning is this, that when the Scripture talks about the end, the last days, its tone is very different. When God addresses us, when God addresses his people and says, you need to be aware that we're in the last days, his tone is different than what we hear from the world. When God addresses this for us, he says, keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't falter. Don't waver. Don't cower. Don't turtle up. You know what that means, right? When you turtle up. You know, a turtle walks around, has his house with him all the time. And he has danger, senses danger. What does he do? He pulls his head in, pulls his legs in. He just waits it out, rides it out. The scripture tells us that that is not what we are called to do. We're not called to turtle up. We're called to keep going. Because God continually is calling us into a deeper, more committed relationship to him. That's going to become increasingly difficult as the world becomes increasingly immoral. We know this is going to happen. We know this is happening. So what do we do? How do we face this? What are we supposed to do right now when we look around us and we see everything that's going on? Somehow, some people are looking at what's happening in other parts of our country, and they're saying, oh, that, that's just, don't worry about that. That's, that's just peaceful. That's just protesting. 
I think it looks like people are trying to destroy things, trying to destroy our cities, trying to destroy other people's property, trying to cause unrest in our country. So what do we do? We keep going. And we take responsibility for our spiritual lives. I want to look at some scripture this morning together that's going to open our eyes to the reality of this world and give us some guidance and present us with a little bit of a challenge. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bible, you want to turn there. Now you are allowed to use your phones, but only if you go to 2 Timothy 3, okay? So you can get your phones out. Paul is writing to Timothy now, I know it seems like five years ago, but just in March, before everything started spinning out of control here, we were finishing the book of 1 Timothy. So you know all about Paul and Timothy. You know that Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus, which was a large city, and it was a center of paganism. And it was a center of sexual immorality. That was part of the pagan religion of the goddess Diana who was prevalent in the city of Ephesus. And this is where Timothy was a pastor. He was in this city. You need to know that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. This is the last thing that he wrote that we have preserved for us. And so he knows his time on earth is short, and he talks to Timothy about three things, and I want you to see the first thing. He tells him about the world that we live in. Listen to these verses, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Now I want you to notice a few things here about the world we live in. First of all, he says, in the last days. Well, what are the last days? When are the last days? No one knows exactly when that's going to happen. No one knows for sure. But Paul says that difficulties and trials will mark this age. So when we look around today, could we say that maybe this, maybe these are the last days? I mean, we could. It's possible. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. We don't know when this world as we know it is going to end. But we certainly know that there is difficulty in our world today. And we should know, because we're living it, that life is full of tragedy. We must not be surprised for it. In fact, Jesus made it very clear to his disciples just before he went to the cross. Be ready for it. In this world, he said, in John 16, 33, you will have difficulty. 
in verse 2, we have a very important phrase for us to consider this morning. When Paul starts to describe what it's going to look like in the last days, he says this, people will be, did you notice this, lovers of self. Lovers of self. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that love of self, that self-love is the defining characteristic of the age that we live in. If you look around you, that's what we see. This is an indication that, that Paul is not just talking about Timothy's day, he's talking about our day as well. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but think about these phrases that I know that you hear all the time. Phrases like self-love and self-care and me time and working on me. How many people have ever heard anybody say that? Maybe you've said it. <laughs> That's the defining characteristic of our age. This is our world. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of yourself. You should watch your diet. You should take care of your health. You should care for uh, your family and your financial stability and all those kinds of things. I'm not saying you ignore those things, but when the love of self becomes a driving force in your life, when it becomes the most important thing, it leads to everything else that's on this list. Did you follow as I was reading that list? I read it kind of fast. There's 15 or 16 things on that list, but they start with self-love. Paul says they're lovers of money, proud, arrogant. We see so much of that around us. I know what is best, and so I am going to tell you what to do. Is that not what's happening today? Is that not what's happening all over us? We who are the intelligentsia will tell you little people what you're supposed to be doing. Love of self leads to pride, it leads to arrogance. Notice what he says there, abusive. If I'm more intelligent and I tell you what to do and you don't do it, what am I going to do? I'm going to get abusive. I'm going to try and force you to do what I want you to do. We could go on down this list. We could look at every one of them. Now, unfortunately, some of this dangerous thinking has infiltrated the church. Because even amongst Christ followers, this me-first philosophy is rampant. Well, I can't love God and others until I learn to love myself. I need to learn to love me, and then I can do what God wants. That's heresy. That's heresy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 22? He said, the greatest commandment is what? Love yourself? No, love God. And what is the second commandment, which is equally important? What does he say? Love self? No, love others. Love your neighbor. Now, he does say, love God. The second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And people have flopped that. And said, see, i got to love myself, and then I can love my neighbor. But that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is this. He was appealing to the fact that he knew our sinful nature naturally loves self. We naturally take care of ourselves. So Jesus was saying, look, 
You know how you feel about yourself? You know how you like to take care of your own needs? Well, do that for other people. That's what Jesus says. John MacArthur says it this way, whenever love for self is elevated, love of God and the things of God is lowered. When we make ourselves more important, God and everyone else become less important. I want you to notice in verse number six, as Paul continues his warning to Timothy and Timothy's people and to me and our people, He says, watch out, because among them, among those who would live this kind of philosophy, who are trying to control you, he says, among them there are those who creep into households. That's an interesting phrase. They creep into households. Some some of you husbands and fathers, maybe, dads, are sitting there saying, well, they're not creeping into my household. I got a deadbolt, and I got a special little something right beside the bed on the nightstand. They're not going to creep into my house. Can I suggest to you that this philosophy and this manner of living and this sinful way of life is creeping into your household? It's creeping into every household that is represented here. All of you who are sitting here, all of you who are in your cars, all of those who are watching from home right now, it is creeping into your household. Do you know how it's doing it? It's coming through your cable line. It's coming through your Wi-Fi. It's coming through your telephone. It's creeping into your household. It's creeping into all of our households. It's frightening what's happening today, my friends, all around us. I'm not trying to scare you, but I do want you to be aware. That's why Paul is writing this. Be aware of what is accessible in your home right now to your children and to you. You can literally Google anything, and it will instantly be at your fingertips. Parents, if you have children that have access to devices, phones and iPads and smart TVs, you better put some safeguards on there. You better watch what's going on because it's there and it is creeping into your household. It's infiltrating our hearts and our minds. It's right in front of us. We need to be so careful you don't believe that is happening, just spend some time this afternoon. Take a look for yourself here. In verse number 7, he makes another description there that I think is very interesting. He says that this generation in the last days is always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Think about our generation's love of education. Whenever anything goes wrong, what is the first suggestion? What is it? We need what? More education. More education. Billions. We spend 
almost $800 billion a year in this country on just secondary education. More people have finished high school, more people have gone to college in the last 30 years than ever in the history of human civilization. And yet, this is where we are. Are things getting better morally, spiritually, behaviorally in our world? This is the world we live in. I'm not saying education is bad. I have some. I know you can't tell, but I do have a little bit. I wouldn't mind having a little bit more in certain areas. But that's not the answer. Secondly, he talks not only about the world we live in, that's number one, but secondly, our life in this world. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from the Lord, or, or from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred things which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now Paul shifts from the world we live in to our life in the world. You, however, it's different for you. We have a different pattern to follow. Often when I'm talking to people who are struggling, who have made some poor choices and it's resulted in difficulty in their lives, one of the things I'll say is, there's a different way to live your life. I know that it doesn't seem like it, but we don't have to live our lives like the whole rest of this culture that we're living in the middle of. We don't have to live like that. Now, people want you to believe that there's no option. Young people, they want you to believe that there's no other way to live your life. There's, it's not possible to be pure. It's not possible to be sexually pure in a relationship with another person. They want you to believe that. There's no other way to live. Paul says... There is a different way to live. Paul says to Timothy, and by extension, Timothy's people, and to us, by extension, you, you can follow this pattern. I'm laying this pattern for you. You've seen the way that I live, Timothy. You've seen my purpose in life. You've seen how I've tried to handle all the things that have, that have happened to me, my patience and my faithfulness. And by extension, this is what Tim and I are trying to share with you folks and to challenge you with every week when we stand up here. It's the burden of our hearts. There's a different way to live. Now, sometimes we make that choice. We say, okay, I'm going to live a different way. I'm going I'm to give my heart to Christ. I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to 
try to live according to the principles of his word. And still look what happens in my life. Still. I mean, where is God? I thought if I gave my life to God that this stuff wouldn't happen. But what did Paul say? He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I have to tell you this morning that deciding to follow Jesus Christ with your life and with your family does not guarantee that you will not have troubles. In fact, it guarantees that you will have troubles. And I know some of you are sitting there saying, wow, you really don't have much education. You don't know how to draw a crowd at all. You're saying the opposite of what you should if you want people to listen. No, I'm just, I'm doing what Jesus did. What did Jesus say? He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to give up your life. You're going to have to turn your back on everything that the world offers. That can't be the most important thing to you. You have a different pattern of following. And, and when we follow God and when difficult things happen, we say, where is God? This doesn't make any sense. I'm trying to do what you want me to do, God. Tim mentioned the equip classes a little earlier, and I do teach a series of theology classes. And a couple of years ago, I was reading, and I found this quote. I honestly don't remember where I found it, but I love it so much. We do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. You know what that means? It means right now in our lives, we need to know what we believe because when it gets dark, when difficult things come, if we wait till then to figure out what God is doing, we're going to make the wrong choice. We're going to make the wrong decision. We're going to believe the wrong things. We're going to look at it and say, God, you're cruel. You don't love me. In the light, we need to understand that God does love us, that he does have a plan, that part of his plan is some of the things that we're walking through right now. That's why we do these equip classes. Can I encourage you, a week from tomorrow, Dave Lambertson is going to be teaching that class, Reasons to Believe in Jesus. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I need to be solid in what I believe about Jesus Christ, about the fact that he lived on this earth, that he died, that he rose again. That was real. It happened. And you have people in your life that need that. You need to come to that class. You need to learn. Learn what it is to believe. Paul goes on and he says here, all a desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And, and here's the really hard part in verse 13. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I don't know about you. I, my wife and my son make fun of me because they say I'm getting old. I, I am getting old. I'm, I, I peaked about two months ago. Had a big birthday, and now I'm, you know, careening headlong down the back slope here of whatever is left of my life. But they tease me because they, I'm, I'm getting to be, you know, a, the, the get-off-my-lawn old guy, you know, the crotchety old irritable. Because you look around, I look around, 
and I see everything that's going on, and I say, I'm, I'm trying to do what you want me to do, God. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to do what you've called me to do with this group of people, with this team that you have given us, and look what's happening. How come the evil prosper and the good suffer? How come you can have hundreds of people just down the road and we can only have 50? And that's the hard part, isn't it? While evil, the evil and the impostors go from place to place, and we see it around us, we feel like everything's spinning out of control, it's getting worse and worse, all the while we suffer. What does Paul say? What does the Holy Spirit, God himself, tell Paul to say? Verse 14, but as for you, continue. Stop looking at everything that's happening all over the place, getting all frustrated, getting all irritated. That's my problem. I get irritated. I have like this much patience, and it shrunk. Stop looking around. Stop worrying about what's going on, and continue, Paul says, in what you have learned. Now, my friend, listen to me. You can only continue in it if you've learned it. You can only continue in it if you've learned it. Keep going. What is our life in this world? It has to be different. Following another pattern, learning, acknowledging the reality of what's going on around us, that it's going to be difficult. This is the world we live in, and there's our life in the world, and then in verse 16 and 17 we see God's word in our lives. Little disclaimer, I'm going to read these two verses for you. These are two of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible, and I'm going to talk about them for like two minutes. So my apology, I could speak on these verses for hours, but that's not our purpose this morning. Just see God's word in our lives. What does Paul say? He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. An incredible amount of truth here, but as we read it in context with this whole chapter, it is God's word in our lives as we live life in this world, this crazy, sinful world that we live in, that will be the difference. It's unbelievable to me when I stop and think about this, but what he is saying here is that we have the very words of God spoken directly to us. The words of God. Sometime when I'm sometimes when I'm talking about my Bible, I call it the Bible. Sometimes I call it Scripture. Sometimes I call it God's Word. Sometimes I call it God's words. These are God's words. They're His words words to us, and we have it right here. And he speaks directly to us. It is wrong for us to simply look at the Bible and say, that's what God said 2,000 years ago. No, this is what God is saying today. 
today to us, to you, is profitable, is beneficial, it's helpful, it's instructive. How? He says four things. First of all, for teaching. That's not the method, by the way. It's the material. It's profitable. Literally, the word teaching here literally could be translated for doctrine. That's why we teach theology. I know you think I teach theology because I'm a nerd and I like those things. That's also true. But I teach theology because theology, by the Holy Spirit, properly applied, is the only thing that will change your life. It's the only thing that changes my life. Some of you may look and you say, that poor guy has to sit there and he has to read all those big, thick books and he has to try and distill it down and put it in a class and come and spend an evening and teach it to everybody. Don't cry for me. I love it. Because it changes my life too. And I know some of you don't know me very well and you may not realize this, but my life needs to change. I need to be a different person. And it's only God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit that would change this life. He also says it's beneficial for reproof. We could say conviction. <laughs> I won't say his name, but there's a guy there's a part of this church who very often after I get done speaking, he probably does the same thing to Tim, but after I get done speaking, a lot of times he comes up to me and he says, well, thanks for stepping all over my toes. And he's, you know, he's, he's kidding when he says it that way. But that's one of the things that God's word is profitable for, conviction. If you ever are sitting there, and I hope not because we're laying some kind of a guilt trip on you, but if you're ever sitting there and you feel that tugging in your heart and you're thinking, I'm not living the way that I should be in this area of my life, that's what this is, conviction. That's the Holy Spirit saying, look, child of God, that's not right. But it's also profitable for correction. God doesn't just point out the ways in which we need to change. He gives us the right path. Sets us straight. And fourthly, it's also, he says, beneficial, profitable, helpful for training. Literally, discipline. Why? Verse 17 so that we can be ready, so that we can be ready to do whatever God asks of us. Have you ever come to a point in your life, a situation, a circumstance, a, maybe a change in something that's going on in your life, and you say something like, I'm not ready for this. How many people have had teenagers and have said that one or a thousand times. I'm not ready for this. You lose your job. I'm not ready for this. You have an illness in your family. I'm not ready for this. You lose someone you love. I'm not ready for this. 
gives us his word. He seeks to show us what we should believe, doctrine. He seeks to convict us of the things that are not right. He seeks to set us on the right path and discipline us so that we will be ready. So that we'll be ready for the things that happen in our lives. I'm looking at our world and I'm trying to anticipate, like all of us, like you are, trying to anticipate what's coming next. (laughs) 2020, who knew? What's going to happen in October? November? Trying to anticipate it. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I want to know what's going to happen. But I want to be ready. That's why God gives us his word. So that we can be ready to handle it. Well, We could say a whole lot more about every aspect of what we've talked about here, but I just want to leave you with three action steps this morning very briefly. I know the whole half an hour has been three, and now I said three more, but these are a lot shorter. Three action steps, because I don't want you to just come here and listen to me blather on up here. I want you to do something about it. By the way, that's really true every week when Tim and I are up here. We don't want you to just listen. We want you to do something. I need to do something. It's not enough for me to stand up here and say this. I need to do something. So here's three quick action steps. Number one, think about your loves. Think about your loves, what you love. Are 